0: Hello, and welcome back to Stern Chats, a podcast that explores the untold stories of the NYU Stern community. My name is Erin Malone, and today I'm thrilled to have two special guests on the show today to discuss an industry trend that every leader from finance to consulting to healthcare is considering right now, AI. A quick background on myself. I'm a current part-time Langone MBA student here at Stern, and a full-time director in Stern's Development and Alumni Relations office where I've worked for eight years. While I've personally yet to integrate AI into my current job, I know it's on the minds of many of my fellow business school colleagues and students. So I'll start by welcoming our first guest, our very own Connor Grennan. Connor is Dean of MBA students here at Stern and head of Stern's Generative AI Initiative. He's also New York Times bestselling author and an alumnus himself from the Stern MBA class of 2010. Welcome Connor.
1: Thank you, Erin. It's great to be here.
0: Connor, have you ever been on Stern Chats before?
1: You know, I was thinking about that. I think back when I first started like literally the first uh, episode or second episode, they had nobody and they're like, hey, <laughs> can you just come up? Like I was in the building.
0: Well, great. Well, glad to have you back. Next, I would like to welcome Marco Argenti. Marco is chief information officer at Goldman Sachs who joined his partner in 2019. Before Goldman, Marco worked as VP of Technology for six years at Amazon, and prior to that at Nokia. Marco is getting a lot of attention in industry and in the media as of late, given his bullishness on AI and his unique approach to driving transformational change at a place like Goldman Sachs. Just this week, he was included in Business Insider's Top 100 People in AI. And on a recent interview I watched online in anticipation for our chat today, he was introduced by the host as one of the most progressive leaders in technology. Welcome, Marco.
2: Thank you, Erin, and it's an honor to be here.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you. So before we dive into AI, I want to hear a little bit about your background, Marco. We have a community of business school young professionals listening in. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were in your career around 20 years ago to now? And was this transition from tech to banking planned?
2: Throughout my career, I've always been uh, in technology, uh, but I moved uh, across different fields, not necessarily through uh, different disciplines. Actually, one of the things a believer on uh, is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you kind of want to stick to something that you think you can do well. Um, And you know, you can apply that uh, across different fields. So in my case, I went from, uh, you know, kind of more like... uh, your internet to the mobile to the uh, uh, cloud to the uh, you know other other disciplines, but I think I kind of want to maintain my roots uh, in uh, in technology because I think you know like technology kind of changes around us, but like with a lot of disciplines, uh, I think it's a continuous learning and uh, and the, and the bar is raising all the time. And so every time you kind of do a big reset, uh, uh, I think uh, you know it can take uh, a while before you become uh, fully effective. One thing that I was lucky uh, with is the fact that I kind of found myself uh, at the very beginning or sometimes a little bit before some of the major revolutions that I had the uh, ability to kind of observe around me. Like the first one was actually the internet itself. So I started uh, my career in uh, uh, 1995 or so where I was running a, a very early internet uh, startup in, in, uh, in Italy that then was acquired by a Canadian company. And we really rode the internet, uh, you know, wave uh, uh, from the very early days. I still remember uh, having like non-graphical browsers, or I still remember, you know, like we launched uh, our own uh, e-commerce sites actually before Amazon. Uh, It was interesting to see how that evolved. And then, you know, I was at the beginning of the uh, uh, 2000, I was uh, uh, attracted by the fact that people will. Wanted, want to use the internet without the constraints of being uh, you know, in a physical place. And so I went back to Italy and I started to run uh, a mobile startup because uh, you know, not too many people know that. But Italy was like the second country in the world where 3G was launched by Hutchison Wampoa. The first one was uh, the Isle of Man. And so it was kind of mm. the, the, the first kind of, uh, or one of the very first major countries that had data on mobile. And so the whole, you know, web uh, or mobile uh, phenomenon kind of really exploded in front of us. And I was able to see that uh, and running my own startup there. And then uh, the whole phenomenon of smartphones and apps uh, uh, started. And so um, I kind of thought that uh, that could be something interesting. And so I joined in 2008. I joined Nokia that uh, at that time uh, uh, was running. Actually, uh, we launched and and was running one of the largest app stores uh, before the iPhone then kind of. Took over. I had, you know, of course, much much more success. And then in 2013, I, I kind of thought that the cloud and the, you know the movement from data centers to distributed data centers and to kind of you know elasticity and agility in compute would be a thing. And so I decided to join Amazon and AWS uh, in, in fairly early days there as well. So I think one of the you know, if we're, I, I don't mean to give any anybody career advice, but one of the things. Uh, they want to hear it. Is, <laughs> they uh, want
0: to hear it from you. Yeah. I
2: mean, it's kind of like, you know, there's a little bit of an art uh, to try to be not too early or not too late on things. So, uh, and I think, uh, when you start to see the momentum actually around you, so it's not just falling in love with an idea or with a paper, but when you, when you actually see traction happening, when you actually start to see there is a specific moment where adoption and in, in fact, what customers or, or the, the use cases that are originated uh, by people around you are kind of pulling the technology to kind of fulfill that, rather than the other way around. So in other words, uh, there's a moment where technology goes from being a solution in search for a problem I and mean, actually being something that is enabling things that are, that are happening uh, with really like bottom up traction. And not every technology had that. And and I think my advice is uh, be very kind of conscious and observant uh, of uh, the signals uh, of true traction, which are generally like people around you come up with things that even the originators of the technology never even thought of. Think about that, the iPhone first version didn't have an app store. And it was like, you know, the first, uh, you know, people that started to experience with uh, the the apps, uh, maybe, you know, or uh, the very early ones that, you know, they caused an explosion of demand that then, you know, created the whole ecosystem. Or at AWS, I remember the fact of having servers on demand, uh, we found immediately ourselves almost like catching up to the demand. And if you look at AI, which is kind of the topic of today, I think the real inflection point wasn't too much like, you know, the. <laughs> it was definitely not the Transformers paper, the Attention of All You Need, that remained largely in academia. It wasn't definitely like the Instruct GPT or the beginning kind of completion only kind of, uh, you know, uh, GPT 1 type of thing. But it was when Chat GPT was launched, then all of a sudden, in a matter of days, AI went from uh, academic uh, talk. To you know a hundred million people around the world actually using it and immediately asking for more and I think mm. that is the moment where you feel that you know the traction exists and, uh, and then at that point for technologists for companies it's the clear signal that they actually need to do something
0: right well Connor, following on that you know, building traction, you know you are now head of generative AI at Stern. so w- w- what exactly is that? I know it's, it's very new and, and you are kind of spearheading this yourself. But could you tell us a bit about how you got into that and and how it's going to impact our students
1: yeah absolutely um yeah we came, came up with this idea back in probably march and uh and my colleague sarah ryan and i were talking about this but marco you know is, is exactly right like, i think it was like november 30th or something like that that ChatGPT drops i saw this come out my wife is uh, in ai at McKinsey. And she was saying, hey, have you seen this thing? And I said, you know, I messed around with it. And like everybody else, I was like, holy cow, this is going to change everything. And so I immediately thought we have to teach our MBA students something. So, you know, we're in business school, right? So I built a framework on how to teach it. And, uh, you know, we went into the classroom, but really what I did was, you know, I started going out to some, you know, heads of, you know, hedge funds, asset management places, people would know in New York and saying, hey, how are you using this? Because we really want to teach our MBA students. And, and Marco, you'll get this right away. The answer, and Marco could probably say it with me, was that we're not using it, right? This was back in February, March. And uh, I was like, oh, well, it's you know, pretty powerful. And yeah. they're like, well, how are you using it? And I was like, well, I'm using it like you know, 30 times a day, 40 times a day. And they said, well, will you come and show us how you use it? And so I was like, okay, well, that's a good learning opportunity to try to teach it. So I took the framework and I took it out. And after, you know, an hour of training C-suite people, they were like, oh, this is going to change everything. I'm sure Marco has had a lot of these (laughs) aha moments when he's in front of people. But the funny thing is that I came out of that thinking, Connor, you are the greatest teacher in history. And then a week later, I would check back in and they would say, oh, well, we're not really using it. And so I, I realized that there was something very strange about this technology that would sort of, you know, I have a, I have my own theories on, would love to hear Marco's theories on as well, but it's so different from all this other transformation. But, you know, at Stern what we're really trying to do is make sure our MBA students are really versed on it. You know, taking this out into the workforce that our faculty uh, understands it because if you understand this, you know, this is a change management thing. It's uh, even more than a digital transformation, I think. And if our students can go out and lead the way in these companies that they're going into, I think they'll really be at an advantage
0: right I, f- I feel like i mean as a as a business student we're all starting from a from an elevated baseline connor and and Marco, can you talk about how AI will revolutionize knowledge re- reasoning, and thought you know from an education perspective, and what yeah. does it mean for for us as MBA
2: students? I will start uh, so one of the uh, you know everybody's trying to compare right now like uh, or has compared uh, the discovery or let's say that the generative AI phenomenon to some of the large scale disruptions such as you know the internet some people are saying it's like the invention of the wheel or fire or whatever and so my favorite one is uh, you know and is, I'm not very originally saying that but it's really like the invention of the printing press and, and mm. why am I saying that I think it's about uh, removing barriers uh, to knowledge or democratization of knowledge okay and so both the printing press and the internet they removed uh, the barrier of uh, physical proximity to the author or uh, let's say availability of the content itself at scale. Okay, so initially before the internet, before the printing press, you needed to physically know the author or someone really closely related to them in order to have access to their manuscripts. And it wasn't easy. And uh, sometimes, you know, you needed to travel in order to get access to certain knowledge and not everybody could do that. And you know, all of a sudden, with the printing press, the constraint of physical location was removed, which was, that gave birth to universities and gave birth to a different form of educational system and so on and so forth. And with the internet, with the digitalization of, cons, uh, of content, uh, that removed uh, you know, even the physical limits of book distribution. Okay? Yet, another barrier still continued to exist which is the barrier of knowledge, the distance between your level of knowledge and the author's uh, level of knowledge or the way it's expressed on the book. A book or a paper can still be inaccessible Mm -hmm. if you don't have the right level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about uh, generative AI is that it really creates a bridge between the author or the content and the consumer of the content. In fact, uh, the reader and the writer Arcando brought uh, on the same level playing field because, as you know, a lot of the answers depend on your ability as a writer of a prompt. Okay, And you can explicitly ask, uh, please explain this. I do it all the time. You know, I'm in the board of, uh, you know, um, uh, Fred Hatch uh, in, uh, in Seattle and also uh, I was on the board of, of, of Pancreatic Cancer uh, Action Network and routinely. Mm-hmm. I was asking GPT to say, "Hey, there is this paper, or this, you know, that I don't understand. Explain it to someone that is not, uh, uh, you know, an oncologist or is, is not a doctor." And all of a sudden, I had a version that was kind of going back to first principles. So, or, you know, if I even say I'm a technologist, they would try to kind of map it to, 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 you know, to concepts that I'm familiar with. And so, imagine the power of this leveling and this ladder that is created now between. Uh, you know, the, the content and, and the reader. And you know, yeah. just uh, just to conclude on that, you know, yeah, it yeah. really becomes almost like a personalized tutoring for uh, mm-hmm. uh, for everyone. And you know, I was reading recently this uh, paper, which is an old one, but it's like this social experiment, which is called the, the Bloom's uh, 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 Two Sigma. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Which is basically that comparing a cohort of traditional classroom uh, students with the uh, a cohort of uh, students with personalized education, and the personalized education, actually, and training, and tutoring, and mentoring, makes the you know the this cohort jump uh, two sigmas into the 98th percentile of performance. And imagine the power of that being now potentially available to every single student on the planet. And so I think this kind wow. of, uh, yeah, this is something that uh, I think should really make us reflect uh, d- deeply.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I love that. I hadn't thought about that. The proximity to the author, Marco. I love that. Uh, you know, gosh, so much to say. I was kind of furiously uh, taking notes. But but I think you're. I think you're absolutely right in sort of like how this sort of changes changes the game. I, you may have seen the BCG study that came out. I don't know, maybe three or four weeks ago now. That was done. Uh, you know, Ethan Mollick was involved. Others were involved. But it was the best study that I've seen on the BCG. Essentially, took seven percent of their workforce and did a case study and really, uh, you know, sort of a made-up case study, and really tracked how generative AI would help everybody in that thing. Now, there's a lot to take out of that, uh, but really one of the interesting things that Marco brings up that, I, that was you know, highlighted in this case was that they found that sort of the, the quote-unquote low-skilled workers jumped by about 47% in terms of quality of work. Uh, you know, however you measure, measure that in a in, uh, large consulting firm, the top performers jumped by 17% so you know there's a couple of ways of looking at that right so when i go out to companies and i work with a lot of companies now around this and talk to them and they you know i get a lot of you know fear around well is this going to you know some 21 year old kid going to take my job and i say well it depends you know you have to be using this too but to marco's point this leveling of what you give to the author it's so good at taking people at you know, with really no not skill but like an understanding of the topic and the implications of that, that Marco's talking about are vast. I mean, to me, it changes how the organization uh, should be structured, right? It flattens the organization. You're no longer hiring really for administrative roles. You're hiring for, or for tasks. You're hiring much more for something like, uh, you know, like um, critical thinking, something like that. So the person coming in can use something like a GPT or another large language model use it as a co-pilot, deliver product to the middle management that's much more advanced, which in turn delivers, which could end up shrinking uh, middle management or retransforming middle management, something like that. So what Marco's talking about is absolutely transformational, which is why I love the printing press uh, analogy. And uh, another analogy, Marco, that I've been thinking of uh, as well, and mine is maybe less original than yours, I'm afraid, uh, but it's around uh, electricity, right? So. So the way that I think about this is, you know, I think a lot about why it's people are finding it hard to adapt. And the the thing that I was sort of thinking about Marco and Love your sort of thought around this too is that, you know, AI as we all know has always been encased in really perfect tight uh, user interfaces. So you know, spell check or something like that. You're not going to use spell check for anything except spell check. But that's AI on your phone. So with, if you think about like a light bulb, going back in time and delivering a light bulb to people before the light bulb existed, they would think this is incredible. This, you know, they know exactly how to use it. Now I can do this and this and this. But then if you time traveled a month later, you know, went back in time a month later and said, I have something even better. I have electricity. And people would say, well, how do you this is amazing. How do you use it? And how do you answer that question? The answer to that question is well, what do you do? Do you need to heat your house? Do you need to cool your house? Do you need to sew your clothes faster or better? Do you need a flywheel? Do you need to churn? But so everybody's use, my use of electricity right now, it has you know a light and a microphone. But you know you talk to somebody in, across the world. That's not their use. And essentially, generative AI has ripped the user interface uh, off AI. And it's become a, a solution without a problem, which is terrifying for people with now, without imagination. And it's terrifying for the C-suite as well, I think. Because what I'm finding is when I'm working with the C-suite, people say, well, what do we do now? Well, you, the C-suite, which is why I always work with C-suite first, and Marco works with more C-suite than anybody, they have to understand the capabilities. And this is where I want to pivot for a second into the Goldman use case, too. I'm dying to hear this. But they have to know what the new benchmarks are because if they don't know the new benchmarks then there's no way to I'm going to put this in air quotes for the podcast enforce that people are doing it. Companies are made up of people that come to work and want to go home. They, you know, now there's going to be some people who are doing their work much faster and much higher quality. But that's very hard to mandate because it augments the individual skills of that of that person. And this is why pivoting. And, and uh, Aaron, if it's okay, I just want to sort of like check yeah. you know, in with Marco about this because, you know, Marco, you've done so much on this, and I've really been following you on this. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you were sort of, I think in a, in a is it venture beat or something like that, you were sort of quoted as saying, I think, about you know, warning against these CEOs against the hyper focus on productivity enhancement because it won't cause differentiation, and sooner or later everybody will have it. It'll, it'll establish a new baseline on productivity. And, and I think that's true, but I'm wondering. But in my mind, that that's so far out because it doesn't have a user interface. I was wondering if, you know, how you see that from the goal, and actually, just for even from your own personal vantage point.
2: Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, question because uh, it's true that. Uh, so I think I think let's actually dissect that even further. So first of all, I keep being convinced that uh, the productivity gains eventually will become uh, essentially like a tide that raises all boats and mm-hmm. it will for a new expectation of performance it will basically reset the bar of what it means to be productive and in order to be competitively differentiated you're going to have to start working on the other, the higher percentiles but i think uh, eventually they will level off now i agree with you that you know we're at the beginning of it And there's still a long runway ahead of us. But if I want to think even further, I think ultimately, I think the real power of AI is not too much about substituting work or doing things uh, that uh, we know how to do, maybe with less people, more efficiently or faster. I think it's actually to do things uh, that we're not capable of doing ourselves. Hmm. So I still think, and this is more like a hope or, you know, like, why rule this out? That a human that is augmented uh, by AI could actually do things that it can do by themselves. So it's interesting, paradoxically, like uh, there are certain cases where uh, increasing the average is actually very, in a way, rewarding, also uh, you know, financially and economically. But there are cases where you know, increasing like the performance of your top people. Can even be more rewarding. I generally do, I sometimes do this analogy of you know, if you have uh, a race uh, or a marathon, and if you had your uh, uh, ability now is to shave two seconds out of anybody you want, would you rather share, shave two seconds out of kind of, you know, most people? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then you're just going to have essentially like people that are arriving like maybe marginally faster or or, but if you shave two seconds uh, out of the top performer who by the way just finished the marathon in in two hours and one second you will basically break a world record that took like probably like you know like decades to get there and so i I think there is a big non-linearity in uh, in this depending on really on the specialization of the job you know it's funny how you mentioned before i saw that statistics on bcg there is another study from McKinsey that actually specifically on developers, uh, mm-hmm. shows an inversion of that curve, shows, uh, uh, let's say, uh, like, you know, the, your average developer g- again, like around the uh, 20 to 40%, and then in the, in your top developers, uh, you know, you can register uh, productivity gains up to 80%. And funny enough, on the more junior developers, there is even negative productivity gain. Oh, wow. So complete inversion of the curve why well I think what we done because the first use case that we explored and this has been now for like you know over over uh, eight months has been really like uh, increasing the developer productivity so we've done a lot of uh, work there we've done a lot of a B testing we really put together like a good measurement framework and uh, it really depends on the class of problem so if you're talking about because at the end of the day you need to understand uh, where developers are really spending their time and so the truth is, developers—not all developers—spend most of their time coding. Okay, so coding is actually a different percentage depending on, uh, on on the developer. Some developers spend most of their time actually trying to figure out how to do things or trying to figure out how to solve certain problems, etc. And so, depending on that distribution, you know, a junior developer will benefit uh, maybe for the coding part a little bit, but then the algorithmic part. Uh, you know, and and try to figure out how to do things is kind of so overwhelmingly more important. And then the gains are actually not going to really be there in full force. Or for example, you can't take the output of a code uh, generator for what it is. You need to code review it. And obviously, like the more senior people are much better code reviewers they will immediately pinpoint hallucinations they will immediately pinpoint potential issues whereas the junior people will have to actually go through very painful code reviews of code that is not theirs. and actually that will kind of slow them down so i think it's very dependent uh, on the on the field we find that more or more like classic operation type of jobs such as uh, you know, process type of job, more repetitive jobs, etc. Then the gain uh, is exactly like you described. Okay. You asked me about use cases. Maybe uh, uh, I can kind of, you know, like give you a little bit of the spectrum uh, of what we're working on. So first of all, the thing that we wanted to do since the beginning, given that we are a regulated industry, and that's really like the big difference between, uh, you know, a bank, for example, or and, and a digital media company. We're both digital companies, but one, you know, obviously has uh, like healthcare, and others have very, very different st- set of rules. And so, the first thing that we did was, uh, I like to call it like enable safe experimentation. Mm-hmm. So, really creating a centralized platform that takes care of the compliance requirements, such as uh, retention of uh, uh, of, uh, of prompts uh, or uh, you know filtering out potential uh, you know information or PIs that you don't want to kind of send to the LM, making sure that uh, we have lineage on uh, on uh, any data that we use on training, et cetera, et cetera. So those basics are covered centrally, and then on, once we have the sandbox, then we kind of created a a, a, a mechanism for people to submit ideas. We had like over a hundred plus, uh, you know, ideas that are formalized in what we call the working backwards uh, mechanism, and then. Uh, we selected about 15 use cases that are now doing in uh, you know in, in various forms of, of, of pilot and proof of concepts, etc. And those are really like in a spectrum that goes from like you know let's say on the left you have more like productivity enhancement, like bigger one right now being the developer productivity, and then you start getting into knowledge worker productivity, yeah. where uh, we are using uh, interestingly using LLMs. Uh, to create workflows or to validate workflows or to really almost like create a sort of a programmable enterprise where you're adapting your uh, processes and the capacity of people associated to the processes based on uh, uh, you know, on the incoming tasks and based, for example, on, on the environment. Is it a closing day of the day? Is it like a closing of the month? And so you can redistribute workflows uh, uh, dynamically. A lot of automation around, uh, uh, you know, document digitization and extraction of uh, of, uh, of entities and so forth. And then you kind of start navigating on the right a little bit more about the knowledge side, which I think is one of the most interesting. So a lot of our people, they live, uh, you know, there is a pattern there, which is, uh, you know, we have incredible amounts of external information and the public information and the internal information, etc. How do you process that? How do you make sense of that? And I mean, if you think about LLMs, uh, are the ultimate summarizers. They go from uh, the entire internet to the next word. <laughs> so I mean, and so imagine uh, you know that power. So we started to work on uh, you know we kind of ingest uh, um, all, for example, public filings uh, um, and uh, earnings reports, etc. Mm-hmm. And then we make that uh, available uh, through a chat interface. Where you know our bankers or our analysts can actually ask questions specifically on uh, pretty much anything that uh, uh, is contained in these large sets of information and create and really really complex queries that will take a lot to uh, to process and so then how is that really useful? Well, imagine the case of uh, an asset manager that you know wants to test their investment hypothesis. So with an LLM. You can ask questions such as, given the following hypothesis. A, let's say the interest rates uh, uh, are going to stay at a certain level for a certain time. Uh, you know, geopolitical conflicts will continue for an X amount of months. Oil price will continue to raise. Or you can say, like, you can express a lot of those in the prompt. And then we use this technique called retrieval uh, uh, augmented generation where based on that prompt, we spawn uh, some uh, processes, we go out, we take the relevant information that we vectorize into vector databases, we come back, we summarize, and then, uh, you know, the answer could be, okay, here's a basket of stock that could actually benefit uh, if those hypotheses are actually true. This process... uh, Without an LLM, without a generative AI, it could sometimes take you know days in, before the answer comes back because there is a team of analysts that are going to start you know doing a bunch of correlation, doing a bunch of data extractions, and so forth. An LLM can do it you know multiple times a day, it can do it in minutes or in seconds. And the, and the power of that is that you increase the cycle time of kind of testing your hypothesis in a way that generates faster time to market, more accuracy, and so on and so forth. Super powerful.
1: Sorry, but just, just to ask you on that real quick too, because I, I get asked this a lot around investing and can it help invest. And I just wanted to validate what, what you're saying here and just ask if this is sort of where you were taking it to. Because uh, I remember Sam Altman, I think in that interview with Lex Friedman back in like April said, this is not a great knowledge tool. It's a great reasoning tool. And so I think the precision of information on the front end through 10Ks earning reports and things like that, then using that, as long as the information's in there, not using it to grab information, which is much more vulnerable to uh, hallucination, but then you're talking about sort of using it as a reasoning tool to validate hypothesis. Once you once you have validated the information going in is correct. That's right. That and right? The, and
2: yeah. y- as you can see, that's the pattern. I explicitly yeah. didn't say, "Hey, you know, what should I invest on?"
1: Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. well, we'd all be would be billionaires, yeah. all of us. It's
2: actually at the end of the day, if you think about it, is this idea of uh, dynamic workflow and being able to actually reason and be able to extract, uh, you know, out of the thousands of millions of possible, uh, you know, uh, state or combinations or data sources, those that actually could be relevant. Because at the end of the day, like we think about, you know, this attention layer in transformers as, you know, something that helps the neural network, uh, you know, like understand which, you know, which words or which weights are more important than others. But I think of that as almost like an attention layer for humans. What are the data that you need to pay attention to, really? And then really informs your your output. What are the maximum correlations? And it is at the end of the day, reasoning, it is at the end of the day, an emerging ability of workflow creation and so on and so forth. I yeah. tell you that, uh, you know, one of the surprising things of LLMs is that they actually do express uh, even some degree of common sense. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And, you know, I like to say that, you know, it's like almost like common sense is like the anti-entropic way for humans also to, to, to deal with things that they've never seen before. I, like, I, I was joking at, at a conference yesterday, I was saying, common sense is the ultimate else statement if you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it is the same uh, that protects you from the explosion of edge cases and it really directs uh, uh, you know, attention to the things that matter the most, even if you haven't seen them before. And I think that's uh, that's the power even that you know, uh, can be applicable in investing, can be applicable in uh, even like banking, you know, what are the things that are more relevant to my customer given all that and given like the events and what is the, where would the, my customers have to pay attention? What would I have to pay attention to? At that point, you can turn uh, you know, a relation meeting into an incredibly insightful and value-added meeting which is what we know with this kind of banker co-pilot use case that, uh, that we are, we're also experimenting. And So as you can see, there is a range, there is a spectrum going more from the automation productivity to automation productivity to knowledge workers, to then all the way to knowledge extraction, knowledge management, and then you know even like uh, uh, knowledge workflows that, and, and attention uh, uh, mechanism that, uh, that is applied to knowledge that I think is really where the disruptive value lies.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating and it's, uh, I, th- I mean, that's exactly sort of like how I've seen it as well as this thing that cuts through the noise. I mean, it's, again, I was working with a, a private equity firm and just, you know, using Claude also because Claude can, you know, take, as you know, uh, this is an anthropic tool, which is similar to ChatGPT, but it can take so much uh, more information at once, but also code, inter- when it was called code interpreter, I think it's now advanced uh, data analysis. I would put in, Marco. You'll love this. You know, you've probably seen it, but I would put in, you know, FIFA uh, stats from twenty twenty, hundred and four columns, you know, and a thousand rows or something. And I would just say, tell me what's interesting. And it would say, well, it's interesting that the height relates to the person's compensation in these following ways. It's just it draws conclusions, not even conclusions. Yeah. It draws your It just your connects attention. the dots and draws okay. your attention. Yeah. It connects dots, and that's the really phenomenal part. I mean. You know, in my own experience, it's like, if you know how to do something, use ChatGPT as an editor for you. If you don't know how ChatGPT get you started, it's like the tyranny of the blank page. In some cases, it just, it speeds up uh, processes, uh, as long as you're sort of careful about where, and I think hallucinations, hallucinations and fairness are going way down, but I, I wanted to ask you about the Goldman approach, because from everything I've read, you are taking a very uh, cautious in a, in a positive way approach where you're like, we want to get this right, which I think is what Apple is doing. I think it's what Google is doing. I think that you're sort of, you know, people are following the Goldman model. They're waiting to see what a company like Goldman does. If you're, if you're sort of leading the, the industry. And, and I wanted to kind of ask you about that, because. Goldman is, you know, is famous for you know its apprenticeship model, which I know is an investment banking model. But Goldman is sort of why, I, you know, as I understand, they like it being in the office. And when I've sort of you know worked with companies on this, I always put more than one person on, you know, working on the same tool at the same time because it sort of keeps people talking like a human, which we know is very powerful. It keeps the creativity flowing. And I'm wondering if, you know, you've sort of seen that Goldman more power in people working together on this, do you know what I mean? Like sort of like where the human element comes and where your collective brain power comes in and trying to sort through some, when you were talking about the sandbox, where that,
2: where sort of like a golden advantage might come, do you think? Well, I think one of the manifestations of that is uh, when given this uh, kind of safety around the platform that we put in place, we actually solicited, uh, uh, you know, ideas and use cases and uh, asking people to just write them down uh, formally you know, in a in a PR and FAQ, and uh, and I was really impressed on how that became a catalyst for conversation uh, within uh, you know within teams and across teams because yeah. one of the things that uh, is quite evident once you see that is LLMs are so dependent on the quality of data, but then data is generally like an asset within a company that is distributed, mm-hmm. and so. All of a sudden people wanted to design a use case like for example our research people wanted to to, to have a use case with regards to research summarization and then uh, maybe they needed data from uh, another team and so that really fueled uh, an incredible conversation between business people and technology people in a way that i almost haven't seen, uh, seen before it's kind of almost like the ultimate equalizer because you know at one point you can always say well you're a technology person you don't really know about the business but now with AI you can argue that nobody really knows anything about where the, about where the you know technology is gonna go and, and, and then how it's going to support the business it's like a blank slate and that puts people in the right mindset and I think our model which is you know not very hierarchical we're like a, a smaller company we're like you know we, I think you know we have a small company compared to some of our other banks, and we try to be really dynamic in the way we kind of uh, uh, interact with the business. So our engineers, for example, for the most part, they actually sit in the businesses. So we have this front-to-back model and so forth. Really was a catalyst for uh, having this uh, conversation where we completely rethink the way we do our business. And then I have to say that uh, the byproduct of that uh, is... uh, as you start uh, experimenting, and as you start actually asking yourself uh, how your business can change and can be disrupted, that forces you to actually know your your current business better, (laughs) paradoxically. And so uh, it's becoming also a way for engineers to really kind of, you know, we have this standard that we call like build with purpose, which is really understanding the why and really understanding what is the connection between what they build and what they do and actually business outcome. And that's uh, you know, one of the things that I'm really kind of suggesting any company to do, which is to really adopt uh, a customer working backwards type of uh, approach, where you try to understand first what is the benefit or what is the problem you're trying to solve, and then you work backwards, but then you have engineers and business people working together on this kind of new frontier uh, in a way that is collaborative, there is iterative, uh, and then you put a measurement uh, in place so that you really are able to understand you know, you can fail fast on some of the use cases that are not yielding a good result. So that's kind of the way we kind of organize the, our journey through AI, and I think that really fits well with the cultural goal.
0: So Marco, I have a, two questions that have come in from our audience, from uh, from our business students, um, more relating to Goldman. The first is, does Goldman anticipate a future decline in revenue since more companies will be using AI and making their own algorithms, LLMs? to manage portfolios? And if so, what is Goldman going to do to make sure you're delivering for your stakeholders?
2: I think, uh, um, you know, like I always say, like the most the most important part of AI is actually the humans, I think, still. <laughs> and especially, like I said, uh, improving uh, the performance uh, of even uh, of your best people. And so uh, I think in Goldman, uh, you know, our biggest asset is our people and how we hire and how selective we are in, uh, in, uh, in hiring and then training and then developing our people. And that will remain our competitive advantage, I think even more so in the age of, uh, of AI. So in fact, uh, I'm kind of thinking the other way around, if anything, mm-hmm. if we play this well, I think it will be very good for our competitiveness, because uh, at the end of the day, this really expands the, 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 the realm of possibilities, this actually, you know, I think is something that, uh, really allows us to even like, you know, think about products or think about services or think about things that, you know, we haven't thought before, or we we were not, maybe was just too expensive, expensive to do before. So with this mindset that, you know, AI actually makes the best even better, (laughs) I think, uh, you know, I think we're really well positioned for leveraging that in the the times to come
0: right and and just being cautious you know are there positions in investment banking or private equity financial planning that you think are more susceptible to job loss due to ai
2: well i think the i think right now we're uh, you know it's like this this same question by the way has been asked uh, every time there was a major revolution like you know yeah. for the internet and the job loss of the internet and then uh, you know computers even i remember i saw like uh, an ad that I was talking about this uh, computer that could potentially replace a lot of your uh, workers and how to deal with that. And then I looked and it was a 1957 Univac uh, one, uh, you know, ad. <laughs> and then if you look at every single time, imagine the number of jobs and the number of, uh, you know, and, and and the wealth and and then, you know, the economies that are being created around the PCs and around the internet and around the cloud, and, you know, cloud has really created trillion dollar companies. and uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it's I think is more about uh, redefining than it is substituting. It's about right now the imperative for everybody, and that's a big, by the way, imperative also for uh, for Stern and for the education system is how do we actually make sure that people are actually prepared uh, for a, a you know upskilling or reskilling or co-skilling or whatever you want to call it in a world where you're going to have a companion uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, could actually kind of really supercharge your abilities, and it's not about uh, all of the sudden uh, substituting anything. It's more about actually allowing you to do more. I'm a big, I'm a big believer again. I like to say no. that again, that in uh, AI by itself. Uh, is just as good as a you know airplane with autopilot without the pilot right. sooner or later something bad is going to yeah. happen <laughs> so yeah. i think i think the role of uh, of people will change but it will remain central
1: you know mark this is what i love about that what you just said because again when i when i'm talking with companies and other people about this like I really try to emphasize, and it sounds like what you're saying as well, is that this is a change management issue as much as it's a digital transformation. Obviously, there's tech stack things like that, but it's but how do you get your culture? Like, how do you? I was talking to a, a interview thing about this, but it was like, what should an AI officer look like? And I was arguing that it should be not live necessarily in the tech space, but in the productivity space or in the learning space. It really has to because it's so simple and straightforward. And I love what you say about jobs because, you know, again, Sam Altman had a tweet probably two weeks ago about job loss. If you, if you happen to see that, and he was saying like, this thing is really good at tasks and that got my thinking as well. And it's, and I kind of probably came around to where you had been for a long time, but thinking, you know, when we talk, a job is not a monolithic thing anymore than a company is a monolithic thing. Like a job is a series of tasks. And if you're, there's tasks within that job that can be sped up to the point of almost practical automation, then yes, eventually that job will change, but it's sort of like this, uh, whatever it's called, ship of Theseus or something, where you take away one board and another board until, you know, is it still the same job? I think, you know, these things, these innovations tend to create more jobs, but you'll be taking away, sort of slowly changing a job until it's looking so different from from what it did before, right, that's how I- No, 100%,
2: 100%.
1: Aaron, I know we're sort of starting to come up on on time. I'm sure there were other things. We we are.
0: I I actually have a question, uh, a first word that comes to your mind. And I was um, with a friend recently who posited this question and it's been on my mind. So first word, the car is to buggy whip manufacturers is the same as AI is to who?
1: Buggy whip, is that like sort of somebody riding a horse with a horse and buggy kind of thing? Like a horse and car? Well,
0: the car replaced that. So yeah. what What will AI replace That's in reference plan. to that?
1: That's good. I, you know what? Let me go first, Marco, because I have an idea.
2: Yeah, go ahead.
1: My great idea is I don't know. And this is why <laughs> I say I don't know. Like when I give uh, talks and, and, you know, Marco, this, you know, this slide, Marco, that they always show that it shows like how fast ChatGPT got to. Uh, a million users and it shows like Netflix took this long, Spotify took this on ChatGPT only took three days. And it's the big wow factor that's supposed to get everybody excited. And I always show that, but I'm always like, the interesting thing to me is not is not the wow factor. It's with all the other things, you know what you're replacing, right? You chat, you know, Spotify, you're replacing your CD collection, Netflix, you're replacing a your trip to the video store. And nobody truly knows what we're replacing with ChatGPT, which my theory is having some background in coaching, that the brain sort of freaks out. The brain sees this, and the brain is great at pattern prediction, automation, things like that. And the brain tries to use it like Google. So people say, well, it's a replacement for Google. And as we know, you try to use it as Google, it's the worst possible way. Google is great, use Google like Google. Google, uh, you know, otherwise, it's gonna be filled with hallucinations, everything else. So in terms of like what generative AI replaces, I, so I have a very pointed and, and purposeful answer, which is, I don't know. Marco, yours has to be better than that.
2: No, I think that's an excellent, uh, an excellent answer. I think the, um, I'm tempted to say that uh, AI sets a, a new bar for us. It's like a call to action. So it's like you know, my my answer would go almost like mediocrity, right? <laughs> yes, it's a great. Answer. You can't be mediocre anymore, kind of thing, because otherwise GPT is going to do a better job than you. And so if you you know, you kind of need to step up. And so I think that would be my answer. It kind of raises the bar for everyone. It's almost like a call to action to the planet, every human that's gonna say, "Hey, you need to rethink your, your skills. You need to rethink, uh, you know, how you learn. You need to rethink how you do things because this is real." Uh, you know, it would be like actually like it's the end of the comfort zone. We need to kind of start to yeah. get it out, outside our comfort zone.
1: But this, first of all, Marco, I'm stealing that. I'm never gonna credit mm. you with it. I'm gonna be using <laughs> this all the time now. People are gonna be dying. They're gonna be like, "Connor, you're brilliant. It replaces mediocrity." Uh, and, and number two, about the comfort zone, you're right. I mean, like, this is why it has to start at the top. And this is why, look, C suite is great at change management. And it's, you know, it's not sales, it's not implementing Salesforce where you can watch the migration of, you know, digital transformation when people are using it and when they're not using it. You don't know when people are using it until you have somebody at the top. Very super t- tiny, c- quick anecdote. I was working with the head of a, a large private bank, not Goldman, <laughs> a different private bank in New York. And he was saying, well, you know, I really need sort of something to help me get my young people up to the speed of where my, you know, kind of like 20 year vets are. And my argument back was, are you sure that's the benchmark? Do you know what I mean? Like, have you tried sort of like seeing what these people can do, you know, using this? So Marco, I was just wondering, and Aaron, I know we're at time, but Mark, I, I was just wondering sort of like, if you have sort of seen younger people maybe coming in uh, a little more uh, adaptive to these uh, technologies.
2: I think there is uh, definitely, you know, a curiosity or uh, or 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 a willingness to kind of change or adapt. Uh, it, it's definitely like part of uh, younger people are kind of, you know, designed, you know, for that, and, and and in the in the in their normal uh, attitude. But I have to say that, to be honest, uh, you know, I don't know if there is an age uh, distribution of mm-hmm. kind of this uh, type of uh, um, the way people are reacting or responding to that. It's more about you know uh, certain people are more uh, maybe earlier in that in in the curve, and other people are a bit uh, you know kind of still a little bit on the sidelines. So I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not sure if uh, if I would necessarily put an age-related uh, tag. It's more like you know an attitude-related tag in a way.
0: So, Marco, to, to wrap this up, can you give us any last words of advice for our business students? I mean, I think we've learned today that developing skills and change management is, is really what they need to be doing before they're, you know, set off into the world of banking and consulting in a couple of years. But any final thoughts to to leave our students with of what they should be doing right now to make sure they're continuing to learn and, and be relevant with AI?
2: I think this has always been a, a, a crucial part of, uh, I think, of development in general. But I think this is the time where the curiosity dial needs to be set at the maximum level. <laughs> you need to be curious. You need to experiment things yourself. You need to actually do things. Just don't read only about AI, actually try to use it. Because uh, what you read uh, is, you know, most likely has been written maybe weeks before. and. This is changing on a daily basis. So the curiosity and being hands on, in whatever form. You can try the copilot if you're a developer, you can try just, you know, GPT and do a you know a lot of kind of deep prompt exploration, you can try, you know, some image generation, but like the practical curiosity of actually wanting to kind of try it with your own hands and then form your own opinions, I think is probably the most important thing.
0: And um, for any members of our alumni community listening in, or our students who you know will soon be alumni, you can continue always, you know, to further your education around AI through alumni lifelong learning benefits so connor i don't know if you've ever taken advantage of this but all alumni can audit you know stern courses for free one per semester indefinitely so that includes leading in the time of ai with professor lechner introduction to ai so just another way you know our student community can continue to to educate and and get up to speed yeah, it's, a,
1: it's a phenomenal benefit that's it's awesome that stern offers that yeah
0: Well, thank you both very much for this great conversation. Very insightful and really honored to have you both here today.
2: Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Marco, For having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you.